0: Welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's most notorious murders where the most brutal, the most heinous, the most horrific high profile homicides in Maryland they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined for this season, season six, the focus is on is on robbery related murders or basically murders where the victim was killed simply because the killer or killers they wanted something that the other the victim had and like I said in the last episode trust me trust me the state of Maryland, uh, they have a lot of these type of homicides um, I only selected 10 of the most horrific and this is just like part one part two will come eventually part two will be here eventually but um for right now i only focused on 10 of the most horrific cases so with that being said let's get right on into it and focus on this episode on this episode the tragic senseless Unbelievable, uncompletely horrific murder of Pam Basu will be profiled, and as in each episode and in every season, there will be an unsolved homicide that needs special attention that will also be profiled. And for this episode, the unsolved shooting murder of 22-year-old Kiyosha Moore will be examined. Now, this next homicide that I'm about to discuss, I literally have to pause when I think about it. I mean, I was about 18, 19 when this happened. And when it did, I was in security guard school. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> y'all remember PTC, Career Institute, in downtown Baltimore? I mean, those of us that's from I mean, I literally paid money to learn how to become a security guard. (laughs) I mean, who does that? And it wasn't like I was armed or nothing like that either. It wasn't like I was walking around with a gun, you know, at least, you know, (laughs) it's it's crazy. I mean, maybe that's why they went out of business. But anyway, (laughs) um, even then, I was trying to pursue some type of career in like law enforcement or dealing with crime or you know I wanted to work with criminals and get inside the criminal mind you know legally (laughs) to to dissect like their way of thinking their motives you know I guess you can call it a criminal psychologist or whatever you want to say a forensic psychologist a criminal profile or whatever I mean I say all that to say (laughs) (laughs) these next two killers wow I mean I will never ever Ever understand? I will never. I've never even heard of anything more brutal, more horrific. And this this homicide, you know, it it wasn't just this this homicide wasn't just notorious in the state of Maryland. It was notorious in the nation, and it was probably one of Maryland's most notable hom- homicides that occurred. And these killers wasn't even from here. They wasn't even from Baltimore or nothing like that. They was just passing through. All right. 26-year-old Rodney Eugene Solomon was born and raised in Southeast D.C. near the Barnaby Terrace neighborhood. And according to articles for the Washington Post, Rodney went to H.G. Woodson High School, where he mainly got average grades, some C's here and there. And like most teens... Like most teens did back then, he eventually turned to a lifestyle of selling drugs and he drifted away from school and into a life of crime. And that type of lifestyle eventually led to Rodney, you know, being in and out of jails, in and out of prisons, that type of lifestyle. Fast forward to the summer of 1992, Rodney gets released from prison in Washington, D.C. for selling drugs. I mean, he was the type of dude. He just got out of prison, and already he's thinking of his next illegal move, his next caper, his next way to make money selling drugs. Just got out, just just like that. I mean, that type of dude. Y'all get the picture. Anyway, Rodney's, he, um, his teenage friend, 16-year-old Bernard Eric Miller, also known as TJ, was from the one hundred block of 59th Place in Northeast D.C., in an area back then known as the district in the early 90s. I don't know why a 16-year-old was hanging out with a 26-year-old, but hey, it is what it is. This is what happened. On the morning of September the 8th, 1992, around like 8 in the morning, you know, just people just just coming off a Labor Day weekend, everybody getting ready for work, you know, or getting ready for school, go back to school or whatever. On this particular morning rodney and bernard were already out up early riding around in a stolen cadillac cruising on i-95 in the savage area close to columbia and in that area i mean you can easily get to dc all you got to do is either hop on stay on 95 or you can take 29 or you can hop on 295 but either way it's not too far from the dc area so i guess they was just passing through or whatever and not familiar, not too familiar with the area. Anyway, in the back seat of the Cadillac was two other teenagers who decided to just go riding around in a stolen car early in the damn morning. If they probably hadn't been out all night. When um, the Cadillac ran out of gas, these idiots was like, "Oh, you know what? I'm just gonna go steal another car. You know, I'm just gonna take somebody else's car. Ain't no biggie." Um, the two backseat passengers, they stayed with the stolen caddy. While Bernard and Rodney, they got out of the car and started off on foot. Going around looking for another car to steal. They walked, first they walked over to a rest area that was close, like, in the area. And when they got there, they decided, oh, I'll just take this Chrysler burn that's sitting here. They had no gun, no knife, no weapon. But when a truck driver saw the whole thing and what they was trying to do, he scared them away and chased them both until Rodney and Bernard took off running into some woods that was close off, like right off of um, I-95. On the other side of the woods was a newly developed townhome community called Bowling Brook Farms in Savage Howard County. As Rodney and Bernard started, you know, just strolling through the neighborhood, determined to find a car to steal, Neighbors later told police that the two clearly stood out just wandering around in this close-knit community where everybody mostly knew everybody. I mean, come on. You see two black dudes just wandering around on foot in a mostly all-white neighborhood, especially early in the morning, in the early 90s. I mean, let's keep it real. Yeah, they look suspicious. You, You stand out. Let's keep it real. But so what? Rodney was like he needed a car and he needed one now. So who cares what it looked like? He was gonna get himself a vehicle. 34-year-old, award-winning, Indian-born scientist, Pam Basu was excited that morning. The day before, Pam had told her supervisor at W.R. Grace and Company in Columbia, where she worked at, that she might just be like a little late, like coming in, because it was her almost two-year-old daughter's uh, first day of preschool at Montessori preschool. I think she was about 22 months Our daughter was like 20 months old um, Pam's husband he was also excited about the big day in their daughter's life and he stayed back from going to work um, a little bit too because he wanted to video videotape and document the whole thing so like the whole big event it was like a big event of her going first day of school as Pam's husband he recorded, happily recorded, everything, the events of that morning. He inadvertently also recorded both Bernard and Rodney women in the background, just walking in the background. I mean, see how God worked? Still walking and wandering throughout the neighborhood looking suspicious. Just basically standing out, walking around early in the morning, looking for shit to steal. But Pam's husband thought none of this. He didn't focus on none of this because that was none of his concern Pam's husband had no idea no premonition at all no way of knowing at all that this would be the last time that he would even see his wife alive after Pam's husband stopped recording and Pam strapped her daughter in her car seat after she strapped her uh daughter in her car seat she herself um she got on the driver's seat of her her car which was a pale 1990 gold uh, BMW sedan and she headed over to the preschool as Pam pulled up to the stop sign a block away from her home in the Bowling Brook Farms area Rodney came running over to Pam's car and punched her through her window that had been rolled down not wanting to miss out on any of the action Bernard ran across a median to help Rodney force and drag Um, Pam out of the BMW with Pam out of the car screaming my baby my baby Pam ran back over to the car but in an effort to uh, like rescue her daughter who was still in in the car Pam's arm got caught on the harness of the seatbelt of the driver side of the car but none of that didn't stop Bernard or Rodney as the BMW as bernard as bernard basically nailed behind the wheel of the bmw and bernard in the passenger seat and rodney in the passenger seat bernard sped off with pam still caught her arm still caught tangled up in the harness of the car seat now can you just imagine the visual because they desperately wanted that car pam was dragged face down on the pavement for almost two miles while these animals tried to entangle Pam's body from the car imagine the visual on that make no mistake about it Pam was hundred percent alive and a hundred percent conscious before she was basically dragged to death now mind you this was eight something in the morning and this happened right in front of neighbors witnesses street workers everybody else that was out on the street other kids going to school can you imagine that with Bernard speeding away while dragging Pam, who was still stuck to the car, witnesses watched with their own eyes, horrified, just completely mortified as the BMW turned a corner, it, it cut off another car, then stopped for a minute. Everybody could only watch as Bernard hopped out of the car, reached in the back seat, tossed Pamela's daughter out of the car and onto the street. Can you imagine it? Just when you thought the scene couldn't get any worse, Bernard hopped back in the BMW and literally started driving into a fence to try to get Pam's body off of the car because her arm was still stuck in the harness of the car seat, I mean, of the seatbelt attached to the car. After deliberately crashing into a fence to try to get Pam's body off of the car when Bernard still couldn't get her body off, After trying several times, Rodney was like, fuck it, I got this. So he hops out of the car and physically untangled Pam's bloodied and bruised body off of the car. I have never in my life heard of nothing more horrific than this. Seriously. A witness later told police that he saw Pam's head fall forward and her head hit the ground face first. When Pam's body was finally off of the car, Rodney stepped over Pam's body like he was stepping over trash, hopped back in the BMW, and sped off. Now, (sighs) married for 12 years and described by her husband as the smartest person in the room, Pam's body was left near the fence on Gorman Road covered in barbed wire and bruises. There was absolutely nothing left of her clothes but a tan blouse on her back that was stained in her blood a neighbor rescued pam's daughter off the street and when the police and paramedics finally arrived on the scene pam was pronounced dead at the scene from all of the massive and extensive internal injuries that she sustained from being dragged for almost two miles i mean the police had to follow a deadly trail of blood clothes shoes and ripped off flesh for almost two miles west on gorman road to where pam's mangled body was found in a mess of skin and flesh and barbed wire from start to finish witnesses and neighbors said the whole everything happened in less than two minutes less than two minutes like they couldn't believe what they were seeing pam's husband had absolutely no idea what had just happened to his wife all within a matter of minutes and i mean just no idea what happened his wife his daughter and so a neighbor came and told him and he saw literally a shoe and his wife's shoe in the street meanwhile bernard and rodney had sped off and made it all the way to eldersburg in carroll county where they drove to a car wash they drove straight to a car wash to try to wash off all the blood and the skin that was still on Pam's BMW. And you ain't going to believe this part. You are not going to believe this part. After they got the car washed, these idiots drove back to Howard County to literally about six miles away from where they had just dragged Pam to her death. I, I, I kid you not. Maybe they were coming back to get the other two passengers that they had just left in a stolen caddy, Maybe they were coming back to survey the scene. I don't know. Maybe they were coming back to just see if the coast was clear Who the hell knows? Either way, they was driving a stolen hot car that had just been involved in a brutal, horrific homicide, literally within miles of where it just happened. I mean, I seriously I, I seriously don't understand the logic of these I, I don't understand the logic. Anyway. Of course, it wasn't long before a state trooper saw the BMW because an all points bulletin had been put out on the car. Of course, when the state trooper followed the BMW on Westbound Route 108 in Columbia, Rodney took off speeding and a high-speed chase started with the trooper standing, uh, the trooper speeding behind the BMW. With the BMW and the trooper flying between 65 to 70 miles an hour. The state trooper called for backup, and at the intersection of Route 108 and 216, a roadblock was set up. When Rodney and Bernard approached the roadblock, they screeched the BMW to a sudden stop. Then, like, at a ridiculous amount of speed, they backed the car up about a mile, lost control of it, of course, and ended up crashing into a fence. The BMW flipped over and landed in a cornfield. Bernard was caught immediately when he tried to climb out of the car. Um, Rodney got out of the car and started running. I mean, it's curious to know like where he thought he was going because I don't know where he thought he was going. I mean, he had a state trooper chasing him on the ground and a helicopter in the air on his ass. And when he was arrested, the helicopter himself made a quick landing. And when it did, the co-pilot jumped out and arrested him. Now, even though Bernard was only 16, you are high if you think that the state of Maryland did not charge him as an adult for this homicide. And both Rodney and Bernard were held without bail for this homicide, and each of them were charged with first-degree murder. Robbery, attempted robbery, kidnapping, felony theft, everything. After Rodney and Bernard were arrested, both of their mothers gave comments to the press Rodney's mother said, in her words, she said, My heart goes out to the family. My love goes out to them. He left me when he was 18 years old, and I just don't know what he has been doing. I didn't raise my son like that. He doesn't live with me. When a child gets a certain age, there's nothing you can do with them, especially in this world today. Now, Bernard's mother, she gave a comment that also said, My son always looked out for his little brothers and my baby who is a a year old. That's why this is so unusual. He is so good with children. He is going to be a father himself in four months. He loves kids, and he would never do anything to hurt anybody. Now, at Rodney and Bernard's trial, typical, they each threw the blame on each other. Both of them was like, I only meant to steal the car. I mean, I ain't mean to kill nobody. I mean, but I I ain't mean for all this to happen. All I was trying to do was get a car. But one by one, witnesses came forward and testified that both Bernard and Robert equally equally shared roles in the tragic murder of this woman. One woman testified saying, in her words, "I saw something was dragging out the driver's side rear door. I looked in. I looked in my mind like one of these. It looked in my mind like." One of these dummies that they stuff up for Halloween. The idea of a body just didn't come to mind. She said she saw the driver of the BMW. She said she saw the driver of the BMW get out of the car, run to the back door, grab the child still in her car seat, and toss her in the road. Another witness testified that he saw Bernard turn around and hit something several times in the back seat of the car before he got out of the car and tossed the child in the street in the end rodney's trial which had been moved to baltimore county because of all the publicity a jury of nine women and three men deliberated for only four hours before finding him guilty of pam's premeditated and felonious murder The jury deliberated for seven hours before finding Bernard guilty of the same charges. Facing the death penalty, instead of sentencing uh, Rodney to death, a Baltimore County jury sentenced Rodney to life in prison plus 60 years. Bernard received a sentence of life in prison, but with the possibility for parole. Now, before this particular case, Carjacking, believe it or not, it wasn't even a word. It was simply just like, okay, somebody stole your car. It was basically just auto theft, even if it was armed. But after this case, the legal term uh, became carjacking. And the then president, President Bush and Congress made carjacking a federal crime with a sentence punishable of up to 15 years to life in prison. 20 other states also copied the same carjacking laws. At no time throughout Rodney and Bernard's trial, or arrest, or sentencing, or anything, any of it, did any of them show any emotion or remorse for any of this. Now, on August the 4th, 2018, after spending more than half of his life in prison, not even just for this particular crime. Fifty two year old Rodney Solomon died at UPMC in Western Maryland. And although Bernard did receive a life sentence with the possibility for parole, he never got out and he's still locked up at North Branch Correctional Institute. Anybody know where that said all the way out where you drive forever. And then, boom, there's a prison and nothing else but some dairy farms. Nowhere near his hometown of D.C. And guess what? Um, I hate to tell Bernard this, but the way the state of Maryland works, he ain't never getting out of prison for this one. I mean, I hate to say it. I mean, I just got that feeling, you know, how they can parole somebody. The, the sniper, whats the face Um, Malvo has a better chance of getting out than this dude. I mean I don't think he I don't even think he even asked for release anymore, like when he called for parole. But uh Rodney, I mean um Bernard, like like his uh defendant, his co defendant Rodney, most likely is gonna die in prison. Now who the reason why this I chose this case as one of the most notorious cases in Maryland is because like I said before, who don't remember this case this case made national news um it is one of the most talked about cases even to this day this is uh they because of this case the legal term carjacking was um term was um i'm sorry was phrased coined um i remember when i was writing uh my book maryland's most notorious murders 1990s 2008 of course I wrote to both of them um, to get their input to see if uh, if they wanted to contribute. You know, they had a statement or a comment or anything because I did tell them that I was profiling uh, this case in a book. And Rodney did write me back. And he told me in a letter that Bernard was not going to respond to me until he told him to. <laughs> Weirdly, I got that letter around here somewhere. Uh, maybe I'll make it uh, available to uh, the public In one of my next upcoming episodes um but yes uh, I gotta find it I do have a letter from Rodney Solomon regarding this case and like I said that was one of the things that stood out to me is that um I did ask him you know why come he wrote me back and uh, I didn't hear anything from Bernard yet he said well he's not gonna do anything until I tell him to weird but anyway um, I remember when this happened, even in the 90s. I, re- I was still, even back then, I was deep into crime. It's, it's, just, it's weird. But I remember, like I said, I was at uh, PTC Career Institute learning how to be a security guard. It's, it's crazy. I can't believe I was wasting my money on that. Took my taxes and everything. <laughs> but um, I, what, it was because of this case. Believe it or not, it was, this case had a lot to do with me wanting to pursue a career in trying to understand the criminal mind, it made me go from um uh at the time I, like I said, I was in security guard school I did get eventually get a security guard job working nights, but I wanted something even deeper than that, even crazier than that because I was a security guard in a really rough neighborhood working night shift, which was white like and callow. <laughs> But um, back in the 90s, Ready Rock Village, but um, I it, it just made me decide to go into from being a security guard to a correctional officer. So I was only a security guard for like maybe a year and a half before I became a correctional officer at the Maryland Penitentiary. That's a whole nother story, but this case had a lot to do with it. And that is one of the reasons why also, from a personal reason, why this case will always be one of the most notorious homicides that ever occurred in Maryland's history. Now, moving right on into this week's Unsolved Homicide, but before I do, before I even go there, let me just mention that this whole podcast, everybody thinks it's just bringing focuses, you know, to attention to the murderers and all of that. This, this focus, the focus on This podcast, it does focus on the most heinous, high-profile homicides occurring in Maryland, but a portion of this podcast will always be dedicated to victims where nobody knows what happened, where nobody knows, or where I should say, where nobody is saying nothing or telling anything about what happened, where a victim of homicide was literally here one minute, and then it was gone the next minute. And you'd be surprised at the number of people who are killed And, you know, friends and family, they have a feeling that they know who killed their loved one. But because they can't prove it, they just don't know how to go about obtaining the evidence. Or they don't have the evidence. They don't know how to go about getting answers. They don't know how to go about getting justice for the victim. And they are still left with tons of unanswered questions. Unbelievable grief, especially now during the holiday time. It's like Christmas next week and it's like the victim died all over again it's hard to just move on with your life like that when you have so many unanswered questions you you're basically just expected to just move on pick up where you left off deal with your ptsd hope that the detectives will either just do their jobs and then hope that the justice system will deliver you some type of justice that can come close to the feelings that you experience when you lose a loved one to homicide. Getting justice in the state of Maryland, that don't happen a lot. Let's let's just be blunt. It, It just don't happen a lot. And detectives are kept busy with homicide cases that already have clues, the cases that already have evidence and the cases that are easy, that already have witnesses that are willing to testify. But what about the homicide cases that don't have clues? What about the cases that are eventually labeled as cold cases and put on the back burner, so to speak, because nobody never opened up their mouth and nobody never came forward? To be honest, let's be real, not a lot really happens until, not a lot really happens in the, until these cases, you know, until evidence starts basically falling out the sky or somebody opens up their mouth and talk. Well, on this, ep- on this podcast... This is how we're going to do things differently. Every single unsolved homicide needs special attention to me. No matter what the victim did or what the victim didn't do. You know, basically, no matter what the victim's lifestyle was like, no matter what they didn't do in their lifestyle or their personal life, who the hell are we to judge when we know damn sure we ain't perfect? Our damn self. That way of reasoning or justifying, it, it really... it. It irks me every single time because who are we to judge? We ain't perfect, and to decide who is worthy of living and dying—I mean, who left that up to you? Oh, so and so deserved to be killed because they was tricking, or so and so deserved to get got because they was selling drugs, or so and so deserved to get killed because they was getting high. Really? Last time I checked, ain't none of y'all named God. Nobody is perfect, and we all make mistakes. So with that being said, the focus for Season 6 Unsolved Homicides is all women. All women who have lost their life to homicide in the state of Maryland and their case is not solved. And this episode's Unsolved Homicide is the shooting murder of 22-year-old Kiyosha Moore. You know... New York Knicks NBA player Reggie Bullock lost a 26-year-old sister to homicide back in July of 2014. And I did profile her unsolved homicide on Season 3, Episode 10, Season Finale. You know her name was Mia Henderson. What are the odds that he would lose another sister to homicide in Baltimore? Well, that's exactly what happened. Five years later, on the evening of Monday, October the 28th, 2019, around 7.48 p.m., 22-year-old Kiyosha Moore was shot in the chest in the 5200 block of Fairlawn Avenue. Somehow, she managed to walk to Sinai Hospital with a bullet in her chest, but she died a short time after she got there. When Reggie heard about his sister's murder, he released a post on Instagram that said, in his words, "I never felt so broken in my life. My two queens, my two that go super hard for me. Shit won't ever be the same. I wish I could have I wish I could have talked one last time that day. I failed as a brother to protect you from the harm of these streets." I failed to be that true brother's keeper. You was watching my team go out there for me and fight the same night shit happened. I can't believe this happened. I'm so sorry, sisters. I'll do my best to keep this family together, and we will work very hard to see who took my sister's life. Just wanted to laugh one last time so you can joke on my fashion, my hair weave, all the funny shit you said, my hair weave. I should say all the funny shit you used to say i missed it all wake me up from this dream forever my two lost sisters and the new york uh, president the new york nicks president released a statement that read on behalf of nicks president our nicks family is deep, deeply saddened by the sudden passing of reggie bullock's family member at times like this we are reminded that life is bigger than basketball now, me personally, I'm just going to say this. Let me just say this. All of this is just a weird-ass coincidence, but damn. What are the odds, y'all? That's how rough living in Bmore is. And as of right now, nobody has been convicted of this homicide. So y'all know what's next. The police and the detectives, they can't do it themselves, and they want to hear from you if you have any information at all that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide please call homicide detectives at 410-396-2100 you can also give them a call at 1-866-7-LOCKUP you can send them a text message at 443-402-4824 you can also email them at tips at baltimorepolice.org. Again, uh, those numbers are cold case detectives at 410-396-2100. You can give them a call at Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can send them a text message at 443 443- 402 4824. You can also email them at homicide tips, and that's tips with an S, at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous people. Trust me. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tingling, hair raising, eye popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of why I do what I do, why I got into true crime, why I started writing all all the true crime books and the podcast and all of that. A lot of people think I just woke up one day and boom, I decided to start a podcast. But nope, that is hardly true. There is a full blown method to all of this madness. And this wasn't just some overnight gimmick. And there is video coming too. So just so y'all know that. But anyway, also be sure to pay a visit to the new website, um, Merlin's Most Notorious Murders.com. And Merlin is spelled MDS Most Notorious Murders with the S dot com, where you can access episodes from all of the seasons, seasons one through season six. You can also find links to all of the true crime books. That are related to this podcast. Uh, the book's entitled uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990s, to 2008, uh, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. You can also find um, links to uh, all of my local bestsellers Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, which is the book that every woman should have, um, A Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, and My Story, Child of Baltimore. Be sure to tune in next week, where another gruesome, another high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a Savage Life production.